Hey there, y'all. I'm Cassie. Welcome back to Where the Dogwood Blooms. Today, I'm talking to author and herbalist Judson Carroll. Like me, Judson grew up on opposite sides of North Carolina. He's led a fascinating life, met some really cool people, and tells incredible stories. Y'all are just going to love him. Pull up a chair and sit a spell. There's a lot to talk about. Hey, Judson, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Um, so I have you on here today because we met over Twitter, right? When I was getting ready to go to the Highland Games. Okay. And you started telling me all these stories about growing up in North Carolina. And you and I are a lot alike because we grew up on both sides of the state traveling back and forth. Um, and I thought you would be great to like talk about growing up in North Carolina and your experiences. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Well, the Highland Games is my back my backyard. <laughs> Literally, there's a trail from my back door that goes right up to Flat Rock on the parkway. And if you hang a left, uh, you're right up on Grandfather Mountain. So uh, I haven't been to one in a long time, but uh, mainly it's because of the traffic. I mean, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, the traffic was awful. I got lucky because I got to ride with the one of the clan organizers that I was there representing. Mm -hmm. So I got lucky. It was like we got to park on site and leave from site. It wasn't that big of a deal. I felt really bad for everybody who was having to park down in the lots and catch the shuttles up. Oh, it's crazy. It really is. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I really shouldn't probably say this, but usually I try to be off the mountain that week every year. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's like, like any big festival, Dogwood Festival or anything like that. I mean, it's just nuts. You know, Merle Fest. Wow. You ever been to Merle Fest? I haven't. Oh, you've got to go to Merle Fest. Uh, man, I used to be there every year, you know, growing up around Boone, um, getting to know Doc Watson and, and all the people associated with him, Charles Welch and uh, all the people that picked with him. I mean, even like Dave Grisman and Jerry Garcia would show up sometimes. Um Going to Merle Fest was just incredible. I mean, for um, I, believe it or not, I was actually shy as a kid. So for me to go there with the storytellers, Arvo and Ray Hicks, they told the Jack Tales, and to suddenly be on a stage in front of like 10,000 people, boy, I had to learn public speaking really quick. <laughs> See, I don't know if I could do that. I'm so shy and nervous. Sometimes I get so upset before I get ready to record a podcast that I have to take as an ex to calm down before really? the Lord. Yeah, it's bad. And so when I was storytelling for the Highland Games, that kept happening. Like everybody was looking at me and I kept forgetting my words and tripping mm. over what I was trying to say. And I was like, oh, this is awful. But once I made it through, it, I think it turned out really good. So, Oh, yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah, when I was a kid, just, you know, uh, travel around those guys trying to learn to play music. I could, I mean, I could sit there with... Oh, Man, I, I, I got to tell you my Jimmy Martin story at one point. At some point, uh, you know, Jimmy Martin was uh, Bill Monroe's uh, lead singer for several years, and he was the best. I mean, when you think of a bluegrass voice, it is Jimmy Martin. They call him the king of bluegrass for one reason only, and it's because he was. He should have been as famous as Earl Scruggs and Lester Flatt, and, uh, but Bill Monroe really tried to destroy his career after he left the band. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a hard drinker, and he was a real... Um, volatile character so he's a hillbilly oh yeah <laughs> see no problem here <laughs> so i could hang out with guys like that and i mean to the extent that i'm like hanging out over near elizabeth and tennessee 
And I said, Mr. Martin, uh, you know, you're a baritone like I am. How do you hit those high notes? He said, well, I tell you, son, you get your hold of a note. Just take hold of one. Take hold of them. And he was in, like, starts to punch me in the stomach. <laughs> your abdominal muscles uh, contract. And my voice went up. I went, get. And he's like, that's it, son. You got it right there. So, yeah, I mean, I got to meet Mac Wiseman and, um, you know, Amy Lou Harris and all those people. But I could hang out with them just fine. I would get on stage literally until probably the age of maybe 22, 23. And um, I would forget everything. I mean, we had been picking. I'd been played. I'd play the same song a hundred times. I would get up there and I would forget the words to the song or I would lose my place. And it was like. It just snowballed till it got to the point where I, I mean, for a while I couldn't, I couldn't play on stage at all. And, uh, really it was that, that realization, um, really hanging out with Doc Watson, the way he would come sit down and, um, you know, Doc was blind, but he could hear all the people out there, maybe 40,000 people out there at Merle Fest or something. And he's just sitting there and say, you know, I want y'all to be just as comfortable as you would be in my own living room. And he just started playing and it finally dawned on me. People are there to have a good time. They want to like you. They're not judging every word, you know. They probably don't even notice when you make a mistake. The other musicians usually don't notice when you make a mistake. Now, there will usually be one jerk who will just stare, like, glare at you, you know. <laughs> as long as you don't look at him, you're, you're doing pretty good. It's, it blows my mind that you have actually met Doc Watson, like, the early years of my life were spent in the mountains with my grandparents. And so I grew up on bluegrass music. I still listen to bluegrass music. Oh, yeah. And to me, that's like meeting a superstar. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. Was... Doc was huge. Doc was, people came from all over the world. I mean, I, I, last time we talked, I told you about how I, I got, you know, met the Dixie Chicks before there were anybody. Um, actually, one of the guys that was around there a lot was Yorma Kalkin, and that's probably a name you don't know, but you've probably heard of the band The Jefferson Airplane, right? Absolutely. He was the lead guitar player. <laughs> I mean, he just thought Doc hung the moon because, you know, Doc was a really good Piedmont-style blues player. Yeah, I got to meet Earl Scruggs briefly. Oh, what was his name? Kenny Baker, fiddle player for Bill Monroe. Miss Bill Monroe, just by a day or two, like his last concert. Uh, Guy Clark. Uh, Miss Town Van Zant by just like a couple months. Billy Joe Shaver, you know, all kinds of just real interesting personalities. John Hartford, he was cool. Steve Earle, man, he was a nut. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Earle was just out of prison at, at the time, and he was not um, socializing well, to put it mildly. Um uh, yeah, Peter Rowan was great. All all these just you know, just just legendary um, performers who were just Arlo Guthrie. Yeah, I got to hang hang, hang out with him. You know, uh, Woody Guthrie's son did Alice's Restaurant. Even went up to Massachusetts to spend some time up at the the old church at the Bell Tower. Got all the way up to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Went in the church up up into the Bell Tower as he talks about in the song. You know, you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. And I walk upstairs, and there's some old fretless banjos on the wall. And they were made by um, Stanley Hicks of Beach Creek, North Carolina, <laughs> just right out my back door, cousin to Ray Hicks, who uh, who taught me uh, storytelling. That is so cool. So how did you get into storytelling? 
Well, you know, uh, I was born in the mountains, grew up uh, really in the coastal swamp, so uh, parents divorced when I was young. And at uh, 15, we went back up, moved back up the mountains. And um, my mother went and took the trash down to the dump site one evening. And this big, burly, bearded mountain man comes out to help her, you know, get the trash out of the car. Well, it turned out to be Arvo Hicks. They get to talking, and he mentions that he's a storyteller and tells the Jack Tales. Well, I grew up on the Jack Tales, and she's like, you know, you've got to meet my son. She, you know, goes home, gets me, takes me over there. I hit it off with Arvo, just big time, right from just the start. Uh, we started talking fishing and foraging and, and, um, and storytelling and music and <laughs> before long he was taking me up taking us up me and my mother up to um ray and rosie hicks uh, cabin which was about 15 miles down a gravel road in a little community called rome anger or beach creek backside of beach mountain which is like a you know has been a big kind of like tourist area ever since the land of oz was built up there in the 70s but they were like in a different world okay uh, I mean, they're like multi-million dollar houses on one side of the mountain. And where they lived, <laughs> they had one electric light bulb, just only electric uh, anything in the house, uh, wood stove to heat the house, wood cook stove to cook on, outhouse out back, and um, got to learn storytelling. Um, I'm very tall. Well, not very tall. Ray was very tall. I'm 6'4". Ray was probably about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, um, he'd always look at me and say, yeah, go. You just about make a hicks with a neck as long as yours go. Learn <laughs> uh, trail stories and play old time music um, with them. We'd sit around Ray and try to sing John Henry. That was an, an adventure. If you ever get a chance, look up uh, Ray Hicks on YouTube. There's actually some of his singing. The man had the most remarkably odd sense of rhythm. If you think Willie Nelson's hard to sing with. <laughs> Regular John Henry go. John Go Boy. <laughs> and I learned uh, herbal medicine from Rosie Hicks. And yeah, I just spent years uh, up there and almost like stepping back in time, you know, like 200 years. You're back in the Foxfire books. Where I grew up, my Papa Cochran's cattle, we grew up basically, I grew up on my Papa Cochran's cattle farm. And he was about 90 when mm -hmm. I was bored. Wow. And um, he played banjo and he played old time music and or, you know, like traditional Appalachian music. And he played songs like John Henry. Yeah, it's really amazing. I was thinking really just the other day about uh, someone asked me one time, they, they said, you know, Doc Watson's not really bluegrass. I don't know what he is. How do you classify him? <laughs> like, well, actually, um, North Carolina has a very rich musical heritage. Uh, from old time music, I mean, you've got like pockets of Virginia, like Galax and such, or Hilton's Virginia over the Carter Fold. You've got, you know, East Tennessee, you've got um, a little bit of North Georgia where they had vibrant old time communities. Basically, everything west of Charlotte, you would find somebody picking, you know, if you were to go back uh, to 1900, 1920. I mean, we've got some, uh, I mean, from Baskin Lamar, Lunsford over in the western part of the state, up in Eden. Um, oh, what's his name? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Charlie Poole. Charlie Poole. And, um, I mean, fiddle players. You got the whole uh, Round Peak style around Surrey County of the old-time banjo. And then the Piedmont Blues. I mean, Blind Boy Fuller's from North Carolina. 
the greatest, probably the greatest uh, acoustic blues musician of all time, John Coltrane is from North Carolina. Yes, he is. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and Dizzy Gillespie was just across the line down in Chiraw. I mean, the musical. I mean, and, and you get into modern times. So we've got beach music, which is, you know, very based on soul music. Uh, you know, a lot of more of the, like, Stax Volt and, and Motown kind of stuff. Um, you've got funk music. George Clinton's from North Carolina. Maceo Parker, who played uh, trumpet with James Brown, is from Charlotte. Uh, Kay Kaiser. Now, there's a forgotten North Carolina hero. Kay Kaiser was one of the greatest big band uh, leaders of the 1930s. He uh, had the most popular radio show called Kay Kaiser and his College of Musical Knowledge. And uh, probably funded half of the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. He literally took his millions and just put it right back in the state. Whenever you're, um, you turn on like uh, UNC TV and it says brought to you by the Kaiser Foundation, that's not Kaiser Permanente. That's actually Kay Kaiser's uh, money that he left in trust for the state of North Carolina. And then Arthur Smith. I mean, Arthur Smith, if he'd gone to Nashville, would have been uh, more popular and influential guitar player than probably Chet Atkins, but he stayed in Charlotte with his, his radio and TV show there. Uh, Arthur's Cracker Jacks, he invented rockabilly. Link Ray from, from Dunn, North Carolina, essentially invented punk rock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. The uh, and, and all of that uh, great Piedmont blues. I'm so uh, fortunate to get to know Etta Baker and play with her a little bit. And um, even... Um, Oh, what was her name? Oh, it, it will come to me at some point. Uh, Elizabeth Cotton. Elizabeth Cotton was from North Carolina. She essentially taught uh, the Pete Seeger and Mike Seeger, the, the, the folk musicians, how to play their instruments because she was their maid up north when she left North Carolina. Okay, so you have to tell me about Etta Baker. I love Etta Baker. <laughs> oh, she was so great. Oh, she was just like she, she was just like your grandmother. You know, I mean, she was just so quiet and good sense of humor. And she'd chuckle a little bit. <laughs> she wasn't very outspoken, and and, and uh, but she was really sweet, really nice. And um, I got, um, um, I guess, probably, I don't know, 15, 16 years old when she had done this uh, tutorial for uh, Homespun Tapes video. Uh, anyway, and it was a guitar video, and I got it, and I learned a couple of her tunes. So as soon as I got to meet her, I was like, uh, "Can we can we pick it together a little bit?" And she's like, "Sure, son, sit down, you know." And <laughs> we played a couple, so maybe Railroad Bill and um, oh, a couple others. Uh, uh, yeah, she was she was really great, really really great. I love like how in love you are with music. I I'm. I tell everybody I'm full of useless information. Yeah. Like I just know random things that other people don't know. And you're that way, like very much so about music. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm kind of that way about a lot of things. That's, uh, <laughs> that's how I make it as an author. <laughs> if I didn't have this head full of useless information, I would uh, be on the streets by now. So you said earlier that, you so you spend a lot of time in the mountains, but you also have roots here in eastern North Carolina too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, family came into um, North Carolina at least by the late 1600s, early 1700s. Um, got a mix of Irish and French, both Huguenot and Cajun and Creole, and um, 
probably a little lumpy blood in there, even though my great grandmother would never admit to it. <laughs> Who knows what else? We got Scottish. We got a lot of English. Uh, in fact, my I guess my great 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 something grandfather was. Lord Cheshire, who had a big land grant in the eastern North Carolina, so the the roots the roots run pretty deep around here. Oh yeah, I'm always telling people that I'm like, if you are from North Carolina and your family has been here forever, I guarantee you, if you start digging into it, you're gonna find some really cool stuff. Oh, like yeah. really cool. Like from all, I've found all kinds of stuff. Like, and I've done my husband's line too. Um, he's actually descended from, they call him the grandfather of North Carolina. He was basically the first guy who owned property in North Carolina. Oh, yeah. His wife. Ooh. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but his wife was um, like the first female attorney in the state. And this is in colonial times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah. Like if you get to digging, you can find some really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. And and we're probably related. I got I mean I got Clarks in the family and, and my family's from Bladen County and I think you said his family was from the White Boy area, so Yeah. <laughs> his um so his dad's family is from Cumberland County, but his mom's okay. family is from Columbus County. Yeah. So if and I feel like everybody from Columbus County is related. Yeah. Yes, he was always up to us. But then I had I yeah. We had actually when some of the Creoles came here um, from like uh, Guadalupe and even Bermuda and such, um, technically not quite Creole, but they were in the same category. Uh, some of um, them uh, built big homes right on the Cape Fear River, right between uh, Fayetteville and, and Elizabethtown. And uh, there were a couple of like really influential uh, Revolutionary War battles around that, uh, around that area. Somebody was telling me about that during a podcast who was it it was uh nicole williams she's brilliant brilliant woman and she was telling me about um the different little battles that were fought in blagan county um yeah and she was talking about the courthouse getting burned down and like all this crazy stuff um yeah so blagan county kind of gets looked over but there's a really rich history over there yeah i think there may have even been more people there in the revolutionary war era than there were in the civil war era because there really weren't many civil war battles there but yeah, they um, they burned the courthouse. I guess when the war, the war of 1812, and then it burned again. I think in the Civil War, and then once more in the 60s. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to find any information on your ancestors. <laughs> exactly, it can be incredibly hard to find. And then uh, one and one of the family graveyards was completely desecrated. Um, yeah, uh, we I found a couple of the old like Civil War area uh, era um, you know cast iron. Uh, monuments mm-hmm. uh, and broken tombstones, and it looked like a lot of things had just been thrown into the lake. That so. was so heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was pretty pretty rough, <laughs> but uh, and it was in the middle of a. Uh, now it's in the middle of a uh, very tight trailer park full of uh, of Yankees. So there was nobody there that even would care about you know. Uh, my family that was buried there so i guess they just let the kids tear it up that's so sad i so i'm everybody knows i'm i love cemeteries and graveyards i'm constantly talking about cemeteries and graveyards i feel like and to me that's a like that's a part a cultural thing Mm -hmm. and so they need to be protected and looked out for so stuff like that just makes me upset i'm so sorry that's yeah yeah it was a bummer i was hoping to find my like great 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 grandfather uh carol buried there um 
uh, his, his name was Owen Carroll, and his wife was Mary. And uh, he seems to have fought in the World War of 1812 and had, I guess, five sons and two daughters. And then after, um, and, and then some another family history says it was the Revolution, and he got a land grant and left to take the land grant in Georgia. I think it was more the War of 1812, just looking at the um, the way the family history um, you know, kind of adds up by years. I think we're missing one generation. Um, and his wife just apparently took off for Georgia, maybe during the gold rush period, but you know, before, um, you know, when, um, they were forcing the Cherokees out of, uh, out of Georgia and probably killed by, by Cherokees and just buried somewhere in the woods somewhere. Yeah. See stories like that. I love stories like that. I mean, it's sad, but it's also kind of brings history to life. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah, being yeah. able to to know these things well i think i may actually have his springfield rifle um there's one old springfield rifle that um was uh in the floorboards under um one of the houses in the family that sherman burned and so i've got this like skeleton of an old springfield (laughs) you know like daniel boone carried the long rifle you know right yeah very cool yeah, and I've got a, an old Enfield uh, from the Civil War that uh, another ancestor carried. And he carved his initials in it and everything, so that's, that's pretty cool, too. That is precious. I wish I had things like that. My family, I don't know what happened to any of the things that we passed out. It's <laughs> like they just disappeared, you know? Yeah. Well, my grandfather and his his father, probably his father, too, they were... Um, they were real into antiques and they were real into collecting and preserving history. I, I told you before, my grandfather did some historic preservation for the state. He did all the stone work up around Morrow Mountain, but then he also rebuilt the, um, or I shouldn't say rebuilt, uh, renovated the, um, the market house there in Fayetteville. And his last project before he died, he had bought um, a, a homestead that his grandfather built. And there was an old road that went in front of it. And he uh, brought everything back. He had the general store. He had the like tax shop, blacksmith shop, um, all the old outbuildings, a post office, and he just filled it with antiques. He went up to um, Ohio and Pennsylvania, learned to build buggies and old horse tack from the Amish. Um, he actually got um, Angus Governor Angus McLean's uh, Surrey somehow got passed down through our family and he renovated it and um he we that's now on display in a, a museum down toward wilmington somewhere anyway yeah we donated that one and um a couple of Waccamaw canoes he had found um in the river when he was a park ranger he did everything he was a farmer he was a politician he was a justice of the peace he was a park ranger uh but uh yeah so the 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 antiques and the, the history of the state have, have just always out been just such a huge part of my family. Well, yeah, you guys ended up doing a um, like a travel guide for the state, right? Yeah, yeah. So after I figured out I couldn't make it uh, living as a musician, <laughs> um, I was too country for Nashville <laughs> and uh, uh, too punk rock for uh, bluegrass. So I went on up. That was before Billy Strings and all that, you know. And uh, went on up to uh, Virginia after 9-11 and um, got involved in politics and did that for a while and was in college up there. 
And uh, my grandmother had a heart attack, so I had to come back to take care of the farm because I was the only grandson. And um, once down on the farm, <laughs> I had to figure out how to make a living uh, because at that point we were just, you know, renting out land. The people would plant soybeans and such. And um, my mother had this idea. You know, I have, had studied journalism and such at University of Georgia before I went up to Virginia. She said, uh, why don't you do a newspaper? And I said, well, all right, we'll do a newspaper. Okay, that that was um, not particularly profitable because that was the era exactly when newspapers were starting to die out. And then it was like, well, you know, you, you've been all over the state your entire life driving back and forth between the mountains and the coast, you know. Uh, why don't we do a tourism magazine? So originally we started the North Carolina Visitor Center online, and that had me going to all 100 counties in North Carolina on a regular basis for every festival. I mean, I was traveling like 50,000 miles a year. I mean, it was crazy. And then we kind of broke it up into regional. We had like uh, Sandals Visitor Center, the Uwari Visitor Center, Appalachian Visitor Center. I don't even remember all the ones. Um, Brunswick. Then it was like, well, let's get back into print. And uh, we did small uh, tourism magazines. Um, probably the biggest one was for Lumberton, North Carolina. They... Um, you know, they need some help with their reputation. So I think that probably ran about eight years or so. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was another adventure. That was a, a chance to just travel the state and eat at every little, um, locally family owned restaurant and, um, go to every little festival and, you know, uh, every historic site I could possibly get to. Uh, it was pretty cool too. That's so that's kind of what I do. I mean, not that it's like a travel guide, but anytime I say I'm going to Wilmington, I'll make little pit stops along the way, whether it be a historic site or, you know, whatever it is, restaurant, whatever. And I'll stop and yeah. take pictures and I'll and then I usually end up writing about it. And I feel like I'm really getting to know the state better by doing that. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it's like all of a sudden I'm connecting with with different areas and deep different people that I never would have met if I hadn't oh, yeah. started this. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And there are so many characters in the state. There oh, are yeah. some, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's persimmon season. And um, a few years ago, I, I was down in a um, little town, little tiny town, um, out sort of between Moore County and Montgomery County. And I need a little work done on my old truck and uh, pulled into this this old station i mean old service station man runs it was in his 80s and his friend was helping him out and he was at least as old you know i noticed the uh his friend wasn't doing too well you know kind of had the shakes a little bit and um sat down next to him and offered him a cigar and you know he said no thanks he put out a cigarette and he had his own and we started chatting and talking about the persimmons and um i said i love persimmons and i said you know uh, one of the one of the best things about persimmon trees is when a possum's been eaten on persimmons, that's the best it's ever going to taste. And he said, "Oh yeah," he said. He said, "I grew up on possum." And he starts telling me, "Well, there was this this yuppie that had pulled up there in a sports car, and he had a bunch of like hunting and fishing stickers on you know on the back of it and everything." And um, I said, uh, "You ever do a small game game hunting?" And he said, "Well, not really. I'm more a big game guy. You know, duck hunting every now and then." And I said, well, we were just talking about possum. He said, I'd die before I'd eat a possum. Let me tell you this little old man. He got up and he was mad. He, 
<laughs> he said, possum saved my life more times than you. And I'll fight any man that says possum ain't worth it. <laughs> That's awesome. I think somebody, um, I know somebody in Brunswick County who eats uh, raccoon. And oh, yeah, yeah. Tell you, it's some of the best eating you've ever had. And I grew up, my daddy would go shoot squirrels and we would have them for dinner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Squirrels, squirrels, great. But um, around uh, Bladen County, uh, actually, uh, um, since it's the older black communities, they would rather have raccoon for uh, Thanksgiving than they would a turkey. And I know a lot of boys who go out and make some money under the table, <laughs> fulfilling that need. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's pretty good. Um, actually, if you, if you do it barbecue style, uh, just the same way you cook a pork shoulder over some uh, hickory coals, very good, actually. It's just, it's a fatty meat, you know, and it just depends entirely on what the animal's been eating. If, if you've got a, a trash can raider, you know, you're going to have something that tastes pretty bad and smells pretty bad. But if... If they're, you know, in the deep woods and uh, they're actually pretty clean animals. When I heard that for the first time, I was like, really? People actually eat them? Because my daddy coon hunted, but I don't remember us ever eating them. I mean, don't get me wrong. My daddy was that guy who would cook it and not tell you what it was. Right, so right. It could have happened. <laughs> I don't remember it happening, but I do, I do remember eating squirrel. And I feel like at least once we ate rabbit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's the bounty of the earth. That's uh, my cookbook, The Omnivore's Guide to Home Cooking. Um, I I think I probably have more fish and game recipes in there than any other book I've ever encountered. I uh, definitely have the largest collection of fish. <laughs> I wanted to really get into all the, you know, it just bugs me when um, people will only eat like, well, uh, one of the coasts, like a lot of people will only eat fried flounder. And I'm like, but, but there's sea trout and there's sheep's head and there's, or, you know, in, in other areas, people, uh, well, what really annoys me is when I see someone, uh, like, catch a shark or a ray and just throw it away to die. That, Aww. yeah, I mean, they say they're trash fish, and people feel that way about carp and such. And to me, um, with very few exceptions, uh, it's all delicious if you know how to cook it right. Um, yeah. Saltwater catfish is one that people just throw away. Um, Pufferfish. You know, um, yeah, if you eat the liver, you can poison yourself. But even on one of those like puffer fish that you catch all the time down, you know, on the intercoastal waterway, there's two little uh, tenderloins of meat right by the spine on the back that are about the size of chicken tenders. And it's the best fish you'll ever eat. So I'm weird. I don't, I love seafood, but I don't like fish that are from the sea. I'll eat rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. I'll eat it all day long, but for whatever reason, I do not like. Really? Oh, yeah, okay. I just I love seafood though. Like I'll eat oysters. I'll eat yeah, scallops. Yeah. I'll I mean pretty much anything that comes <laughs> out of the sea other than fish. Wow. Now, see, I'm the opposite. I mean, I love I, I eat a lot of trout because you know my tax dollars <laughs> stock the stream across from my house, so I'm going to take advantage of that. Uh, but. I would so much rather have saltwater fish any day. I mean, I love um, really red drum. That is like, oh, man, red drum and red snapper. I mean, I would just like stand in line for that all day long. Yeah, see, my husband's that way, and he thinks it's the weirdest thing that I won't eat. I grew up at the beach, and I won't eat anything that any fish that comes out of the sea. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. It's just, I, it's too salty, I guess, like, because. 
you got to think the first fish I ever ate came from freshwater stream. Yeah. And yeah. then whenever you go down to the beach and it's got this heavy, salty kind of flavor, it just doesn't taste good to me. I don't, I don't know. There's only been one time in my life I would not eat fish that was offered to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was down in Georgia working for a, a Methodist church and uh, the preacher was, uh, well, he was probably about 375 pounds, maybe four. His wife was probably getting up about 450. And they had five sons that were all at least that big. And he was a con man and a grifter, and it was a bad situation. But we went out to a parishioner's house, and he had a pond. And he had been catching um, bluegill and a few little bass all day and frying them up. And, man, I can, and let me tell you, I can eat some fried bluegill. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like potato chips. You know, you just cannot stop. You cannot eat just one. Well, there was only one bathroom in that little in that little house, and the preacher's wife went in there and decided and commenced. You can go with that word. She commenced to clog the toilet so thoroughly oh. <laughs> that there was no way anybody else was using it unless it could be unclogged, and there was no plunger in the house. And the preacher unclogged the toilet with his bare hands. Oh wow! Mm. And then he served supper. <laughs> I'm not I'm not feeling so good. Honestly, I got I just I gotta get out of here. Yep. Nope. It's horrifying. Oh, I know, I know. I told you about my uh old friend Jay, uh the barber up in the mountains who was talked like Gower Pyle. I told him that story. He says, That's the awfulest thing I ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> I'll go ahead and tell the Jay the goat story because I mean I know you enjoyed that one last time and uh, so Jay was my barber and he grew up way back in the mountains and I never went to school I mean his mother taught him the basics of writing and arithmetic and he went ended up going to barber college down in Laurenburg so that was a a cultural shock for him he ended up <laughs> dating the lumpy girl and sleeping on her floor with his wallet under his back because her brothers were trying to pick his pocket all the time. <laughs> Anyway, I walk into the uh, barbershop one day. I say, hey, Jay, how you doing? Well, I, I'm I'm doing kind of bad, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so what happened? He said, well, it all started out last week. You know, when my cousin wanted to buy a goat. So we went and we got this goat and we brought it up to my house. And we let it go. And he got up on the front porch. And he wouldn't let us in the house. And we sat there and we studied on it for about an hour and thought, well, we're going to have to study on it for a little bit longer. So we went and got us a couple cases of beer. We came back and studied on it for a little bit longer. And my cousin said, you know, I think my boy left some football gear here in the back seat. And he got these shoulder pads on and put on a helmet. He says, I'm going to get that goat off that porch. He went up there and tried to butt his with that. They good. That goat laid him plumb out in the yard. I thought he was dead. And that goat sitting there wagging his head, shaking, going, blah, blah. I finally crept around and pulled him back under the car. He said, Jay, that goat liked to kill me. Well, we waited till dark and crept around back of the house and clumb in a window. Went out there and the goat was asleep on the porch. So we grabbed and we tied his feet and legs together real good. Went down the road about 10 miles 
and shoved him up under the fence into a cow pasture and pulled that rope out. We got the hell out of there. I thought it was going to be all right. Come in work this morning. This woman comes in here and says, I better not say his last name. So <laughs> Jay, your damn goats on my front porch won't let me in. I said, well, I ain't got a goat. And it was true, too, because I ain't got a goat, and I'm never going to get a goat again. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think people understand. If you've never had a goat or been around a goat, I don't think you understand exactly how stubborn these animals are. Like, all of a sudden, we had, oh, goats. Yeah. We had goats when I was, I guess I was about 15, 16, uh, maybe a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And... um we had the fainting goats they're really popular oh my gosh no yes so my little sister she was probably about five at the time and she went outside one day and i think she was feeding the goats or something and and one of the billies bucked up on her Mm -hmm. my daddy was watching and he said kodaker knock its lights out my baby sister at five years old turns around and she punches (laughs) billy goat right between the eyes and knocked him flat so she could get out of the pit oh well yeah we had them um and see when i was uh oh i don't even know 15 or so there was a a really great uh kung fu school in Boone. uh master rick ward uh had studied with the shaolins in china i mean dude was crazy good i mean he could have been in any like martial arts movies it was a deputy sheriff there in, uh, in Boone. so i learned kung fu from him and so i'd go out in the goat pasture and when they'd come to buck me, I would use my kung fu skills to block them and redirect them. <laughs> and they'd get so mad, they'd start shaking their heads. You'd have about five or six coming at me from every direction. <laughs> it's a great way to practice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can block a kick if you can block a billy goat charging you. <laughs> oh. Oh. oh, yeah. It was comical. I'm sure it was a comical sight. <laughs> I know exactly what you know. My grandmother would have said, "There he is out there doing something weird again." Oh, my best friend when I was little was a a calf. Oh yeah, like, okay. I lived, I lived on a cattle farm, and you know, I every day we walk out into the pasture and we would walk the fence line and check on the cattle because you know my papa Cochran, it was his cattle and he was up in age. So me, mm-hmm. my mama, and her sister, my aunt Pansy. That this is what we did every day and so when i was about i was probably about five a little bull calf was born and this calf just took to me and every time i went out into the pasture it would run right up to me yeah. and my mama was so scared that it was gonna trample me and she was so scared of this calf. and as soon as it got big enough to give it away and get away from its mama and away from me she gave it away i cried I cried for weeks. I had bonded with this calf, y'all. Like, that was just my buddy. And I tell everybody that story. And my husband's like, there's nothing as hick as that story right there. And I'm like, well, it's a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. Uh, my great-grandfather, he raised cattle and uh, and hogs. Uh, he was my French great-grandfather. And, um, oh, he made the best hams and charcuterie and... Um, he kept bees, and it was down in the swamps, uh, Bladen County. And uh, you've probably heard of Tupelo Honey. Um, it was a Van Morrison did a whole album called Tupelo Honey. Well, all that is is a sweet gum tree. 
And so we had all these sweet gum trees down there in the swamp, and that honey was as black as molasses. And it was, oh, it would burn your throat. It was the best honey you've ever had in your life. But he was, um, I guess he was about 96 when he passed away. And, um, man, he was something. He was, uh, he faked deafness for the last 20 years of his life. Because my great grandmother, who was probably part Lumbianian, wouldn't admit to it, she was at least pure Scots Irish and a absolute spitfire. She loved to get anything and anyone to fight. Her favorite uh, trick was taking us out in the fields, like about five miles from the house, with no water, and handing us a hot pepper, and saying it was a sweet banana pepper. And when we were little kids, you know, uh, she watched wrestling. She'd say, "Hit him! Hit him!" <laughs> If you remember Granny on the Beverly Hillbillies, that was my great grandmother. She was, oh yeah. But my great grandfather was this quiet, saintly man. He like never spoke. I mean, he he learned not to talk with her around. And um, I got to spend when he, he, you know, these people did not go to doctors, you know. But the last like few months of his life was in the hospital, and um, my mother and I just lived like a block from the hospital, so. I got to spend like every afternoon with my, my great granddad Fred, and um, he told me all the stories growing up. Um, oh, gosh, I guess it was his father was killed in the Civil War. I mean, the way they grew up and everything, and um, actually scrimped and saved so much his brother got to go to college. He went, um, volunteered for World War One and had the job of bringing the bodies home. And it totally changed. And before then, he was actually, he wanted to be a fashion designer in New York, believe it or not. From from Blaine County, North Carolina, he could draw beautifully. And so he went home and married a girl at the local cotton mill. I should say he had an interesting life from that point on. <laughs> uh, she was uh, probably a little manic depressive. She'd get upset and she'd just take to the woods. She'd take to the swamp is what she'd say. And she'd just disappear for days. And she'd be out there fishing. I guess that's where I, I, I got my love of fishing from. Yeah, it's my goal in life to be just like Granny from Beverly Hills. <laughs> oh, well, let me tell you. You love my Granny. That's what we call her was Granny. And, I mean, she made the best biscuits with lard right there from the farm and buttermilk right there from the farm. And, you know, they trade for flour. And that was that was it. And uh, there was a little mill down down to the house where you could trade on halves. You know, take your corn down there and everything. And I mean, those biscuits were phenomenal. And fried fat back, always sitting on a dish on the back of the stove. And I must have eaten ten pounds of fried fat back and biscuits a week when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, I grew up on uh, homemade biscuits with lard. Mamma made homemade biscuits with lard. And she would roll the biscuit dough out. And then for every biscuit she made, she'd give me a little piece of biscuit dough to eat. And so to this day, raw biscuit dough. Wow, I've never heard of that before. (laughs) My daughters get so mad at me. They're like, you're going to get sick. And I'm like, you shut up. (laughs) I'll do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I do have one really good animal story related to them. I know you like Dobermans. My uh, kid, my dog as a kid, when I was like, you know, four, three, four years old, was um, half Doberman, half uh, a pit bull. And she was the sweetest dog you ever met, uh, not aggressive or at, any, or at all. And when I was there on my grandparents' farm, um, I was I was a farm kid, you know, we'd get up in the morning, this giant breakfast, 
you know, giant. My grandmother must have cooked for an army every day. And she got me drinking coffee at like the age of three, you know. And then we'd go out and we'd go check the fences and go on everything. The dog would be right there with me and I'd pull up a turnip and eat it. And, you know, I thought that was like the greatest thing. Well, when um, my great-grandmother got sick, that dog got up and left and went five miles down the road and moved in with them. Oh. She had never allowed an animal that see my great grandmother had was odd ways about her. Like she could not um like the cows would come up in the back and if she saw a cow out there where she was cooking, she couldn't eat beef that night. She had her like a real weak stomach, you know? And uh, if there was a deformed vegetable, she she had like a superstition about it. She thought it would cause like deformed children or something. She'd get rid of it immediately. But she never let an animal in the house. That dog walked right in that house. That dog sat down right beside the sofa, put it, her head in their in their lap, and stayed there uh, until the very end. That is so sweet. So Axel is just, he's so protective. He blows my mind. Like, my oldest, she sprained her ankle. We were bringing the Christmas tree in the house, and her foot slipped on the uh, our little driveway outside. And she came in, she got on the couch, so she been propping it up a lot lately because it's not completely healed yet and axel would get up in her lap and just lay with her yeah yeah like they're the great dogs over her yeah they are amazing that's so sweet <laughs> she loved that dog too didn't she oh yeah, uh, yeah. grudgingly <laughs> <laughs> that was her way grudge she would not admit it <laughs> that's darling so okay this is going way back in the conversation but i have to ask and i can't i know we talked about this last time but i can't remember what you said how did you get into herbalism oh it was um back when i met uh ray and rosie hicks i was 15 and um went up to uh backside of beach mountain like i was telling you rosie well with the whole hicks family they had made their living um well, what you call wild crafting, going out and harvesting wild herbs and taking them to the Wilcox store to sell. And, and you know, that was the way they made their living with some timbering jobs and, you know, a little truck farming and a little trapping here and there. And But long before anybody thought storytelling was worth anything, you know, in fact, Arbel's father was a preacher. He said that he was going to hell because he was out lying to the world all the time. They did not think, you know, folk tales or folk music, uh, I guess you would call it, was worth anything. Um, so really Ray being an, a bit of an odd one was a little bit shunned even in his own community. Um, so it really was like walking back in time. Well, Rosie was a renowned herbalist. Um, in fact, her cousin was the witch woman in the village. Uh, when Ray went Sir court and Rosie, he was, I think 27 and she was 14 and he was also dating her cousin and that was Hattie Presnell's daughter if I remember correctly now if the Presnells hear this and they take issue with it I'm sorry this is verbal tradition and I may have get the names wrong um, she took three tobacco sticks this was Hattie she was what they called the witch woman I actually dated her granddaughter when I was in high school so real, real tight community and she was an herbalist too um, anyway uh, she took Ray's stick and put it in the middle and set it on fire put kerosene on it, set on fire, and put one stick on the other, one side, and one on the other, and said, this is Rosie, and this is the other one, whose name was actually, I think, Rosa. I mean, the names were even very similar. 
So whichever stick rolls toward yours and catches fire, that's the one you're going to marry. And it was Rosie, who the whole community said was too young for him. And uh, it was crazy. The two of them are crazy for even thinking about dating. Uh, but they did. They married. They had several kids. And uh, <laughs> they had some rough times. They had some good times. But Rosie was uh, an herbalist. Uh, part Cherokee and Catawba Indian, part Scots-Irish, long black hair. I mean, like uh, Crystal Gale length black hair, you know, like knee length black hair. <laughs> and uh, she began teaching me herbalism when I was about 15. And their son, Ted, would take me out in the woods and show me how to find the plants. And um, so I started my herbal apprenticeship when I was 15. And... Um, you know, over the years, I guess I've gotten something like, uh, well, I studied traditional Chinese medicine for about 10 years. I got about 27 certificates from different schools. And uh, so I kind of begrudgingly bear the title of Master Herbalist. And, you know, now I've written about 11 books with the 12th one coming out next month. So that's how I make my living now. That is awesome. My um, So there's there was a rumor that my Mamaw's mama was a granny woman and I don't know if it's true or not it's a note that I made in my family tree a while back and I actually wrote about it on the blog but when I was growing up my mamaw would point out plants to me mm -hmm. so you know like when we would go walk through the cattle field or whatever she would point out you know teach me how to identify wild strawberries mm -hmm. and blackberries and and you know little things and that continued you know until I moved to Wellington and so my kids and everybody gets weirded out because we'll be walking through the forest and I'm like, oh, look, there's <laughs> there's a birch tree. You can use yeah. it for this, you know, or there's, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, so granny witches are like a huge tradition in Western North Carolina and they kind of oh, get yeah. overlooked and like nobody really knows about them if you're not from Appalachia. Like yeah. it's just kind of yeah. like. Yeah, well, these people didn't go to a doctor. I mean, you know, they were up. Uh like what I say, 10, 15 miles down a dirt road before you even got to the main road. You'd have to come all the way down to Valley Cruces um, from the backside of Beach Mountain before you could even find a little doctor um, before. And then there's none there now. It's all tourism now, you know, Mass General stores there and everything. But the Mass store, and there was a little doctor that had a shingle hung out until probably out in the 1960s. You would have to travel... Oh, gosh, 30 miles down the highway, not 194, which was actually designed by Shelton. Was his name Shelton Shepard? Shepard Duggar, I think, Shepard M. Duggar, who was a famous drunk and the only literate man in the county. So the, the state um, hired him to design the road, and he did so by following a cow. <laughs> I went up to the old Banner Elk uh, Motel uh, one time where he lived. And there was actually a hole in the door where he used to pee because he wouldn't go out to the, use the bathroom. So, <laughs> but yeah, well, I tell you, as far as identifying plants, um, it's so important. Um, well, I, for so many reasons, I'm mean, from medicinal reasons, you know, during COVID when we couldn't get out and go and the shelves were empty really brought home to me the importance of being able to provide for yourself, take care of yourself. Uh, but even just, you know, home remedies, I mean, you know, especially if you have kids or something, but somebody gets sick in the middle of the night and it's a snowstorm and you can't get to the emergency room or something, you got to be able to take care of things yourself. 
And with everything going on in the world now, it, it actually reminded me earlier of something Ray Hicks always used to say. He'd say, there's going to come a time when you're going to need this out. You're going to need it. People don't realize, but there's going to come a time. I think he's right. Oh, yeah. It reminds, uh, you know, the song, uh, A Country Boy Can Survive. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, while I much prefer uh, Hank Williams Sr. to Jr., um, and actually got to hang out a little bit with Hank Williams the third, which is, wow, you want to talk about outlaw. <laughs> I've heard some of his. Hank Jr. did one of the best songs. If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie, I Don't Want to Go. You know that one? I do know that one. That is a beautiful song. That is a beautiful song. So, uh, Family Tradition is my favorite, though. That very much so reminds me of my family. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. 100%. 100%. I'm like, that right there is us. But a country boy can survive that. I mean, that's kind of the way I grew up, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. not so much with my mom. My mom is a little more, um, you know, urban. But yeah. my, my family from the mountains was very much, we foraged a lot. We, you know, I learned about blood root and all these different kind of things. And so, you know, I'm ready to build my garden this year. And mm-hmm. I'm going to plant me some elderberries. Like, I'm just, I'm ready to go. Love it, love it. Well, you know, I'm big into permaculture, and uh, oh, um, what is the name of it? <laughs> um, biointensive farming. So, if you uh, gardening, I guess I should say biointensive gardening is really interesting. Back in the early 1800s, Paris couldn't uh, provide enough food to provide for its citizens. It was a huge, you know, city. And so they were bringing in all kinds of produce from the countryside, and it just became overwhelming. And all the botanists and farmers, and it was, I think the government even found it, got together and said, how can we grow more food, you know? Well, they had a lot of manure. And they came up with doing double-dug beds and putting the manure up under the soil and doing hot boxes and cold frames and all kinds of stuff like that. It is amazing the amount of... um, produce you can grow on just a very small space if you plant intensively now the other thing uh, people confuse it with biodynamics which is very different biodynamics is sort of a quasi pagan energetic philosophy of gardening which uh, actually does have some scientific basis i worked with a guy who um, had a doctorate in um, soil science and he said this stuff actually works from a scientific way not necessarily a superstitious way, but it's really interesting. You know, our grandparents planted by the signs, by the signs of the moon, the zodiac signs. Yes, they did. And that's where all that comes from. That is very cool. Yeah, I follow a blog. It's called, and I've brought it up before, so if you've heard it, if you've heard other podcasts, you've heard it, um, Blind Pig and the Acorn. And I mm-hmm. am in love with the Blind Pig family. Um, I've been in contact with the girl who, or the woman who writes it for years her name is Tipper, and she talks a lot about planting by the sun. She actually grows her garden that way. Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's really just an astrological calendar. I mean, we didn't always use, I mean, it's only been in the last 200 years or so, and most people could read. Yeah. So, she, I mean, but w- watching her grow, and she walks you through it, like, every couple of months or every couple of weeks, really, during planting season. She'll tell you what she's planting when and why she's planting it. 
Mm-hmm. And she usually, you know, she's planting by the signs. That's really cool. I wish my grandparents had done that, and they may have grown up doing that. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, they weren't doing it when I was a kid. Yeah, my great grandfather did. Uh, my great grandfather did, and so I kind of grew up on that. And uh, it, it, there's, I mean, there was a certain time to harvest the honey. There was a certain time to kill a hawk. Um, they said if it, the was the moon was waning and you slaughtered your hog at that point, uh, the the meat would be too soft. Yeah, everything was based on, on that. Very cool. Yeah. No, I didn't know that part. I have heard that there were certain times for um, hunting different things and slaughtering mm-hmm. certain things, but I didn't realize that that kind of fell under the same umbrella. Oh, yeah. Even cutting your hair. They would only cut hair on certain days because they said it would grow back thick and full if you cut it on this day or you might go bald if you cut it on another day. And where I, I cannot say that's true or not, I can tell you Rosie Hicks uh, in her 80s had long black hair as thick as could be and um well one of the reasons it stayed black was because she washed her hair with sage tea and and that's a really good if you if you need some hair color and you don't want to buy the chemical stuff (laughs) and if you have dark hair sage tea is fantastic very cool i didn't know that either yeah for toeheads like you and me we ought to go with chamomile or something yeah i need something to keep the yellow in Tell me about your books a little bit. You sent me one. I've I, and I've read through part of it. I haven't finished yet. I'm actually probably going to write a blog post about it eventually. <laughs> well, that's nice. Thank you. So, but well, that was the cookbook and the Omnivore's Guide. That's by far my most popular book because while everybody may not have an interest in herbal medicine, everybody likes to eat. Mm-hmm. And so I um, I take you really back to my childhood, growing up in um, learning to cook from my mother, my grandmother. Uh, being in my great grandmother's kitchen, uh, everything absolutely from scratch. Um, I'm a fanatic about cast iron, <laughs> fanatic about cast iron, and lard and wooden spoons. And um, but I, I really think people need to learn how to cook again. When I, I had a I had a cooking blog for a while, I've worked in a lot of kitchens. Uh, cooking's always been a passion of mine, and I did a, a cooking blog. It was actually called. Um, Southern Appalachian food. Uh, you may, may have even read it at one point. It was slightly popular. Um, and I gave up on it. Uh, oh, yeah, I remember I had a falling out with Google. They didn't pay me my ad revenue that they owed me. And then said I was trying to manipulate my stats, and I wasn't. And ended up there was a class action lawsuit against them, so I was right. But anyway, that's why that one uh, died. But um, what really hit me one day, was a lady got in touch with me and she said every time i make pasta it comes out as one big like gelatinous nasty lump and i mean i'm like scratching my head how how does this happen yeah that's weird and she had an italian last name i'm like how did this happen and i walked through i'm like okay what are you doing let's go through step by step step by step you know what it ended up being no one ever taught her the difference between a, uh, a barely a simmer and a rolling boil. So the water is barely simmering, right? It's not even like really bubbling. And she's just dumped her pasta in there. She's sitting there in a lump in the bottom. Oh, oh, wow. I know. Yeah. I mean, crazy, right? <laughs> There's so, I mean, because the family's been broken down so much over the past 50, 60 years, 
uh, these cooking skills that a lot of us take for granted because we got to learn from our, our older, our parents, our grandparents, all that, were not passed on. And uh, when I, that was the impetus for writing the omnivore's guide. I, I just sat there. I thought, you know, I'm in. I'm not going to get into a bunch of recipes. And you, you know my book. There are no pictures in it. <laughs> there are no. I don't tell you use a spoonful of this and a cup of that. Except in a very rare instance, I tell you how to make sauerkraut. I tell you how to make sauerkraut by chopping up a cabbage, working some salt into it, putting it in a jar and sealing it off. You know, and well. Okay, don't put a lid on it. It will explode. I actually tell you, you could put a rubber glove over it so it'll let the air gas off. That was just one of those crazy things I came up with. Um, you know, I tell you how to fry an egg, how to boil water. But I mean, then, then I'll also get into uh, how to cook traditional North Carolina barbecue, how to make, um, oh gosh, fried rice, eggplant parmesan, <laughs> uh, lots of French dishes because there's a lot of French cookie in my family, uh, you know. First, you make a roux, and then you can make a sauce piquant, and you can make a a la creole, and you can make gumbo and jambalaya, and all that good, good food. food. A lot of Mexican food, because um, (laughs) I think one of my uh, best reasons for dating a a lot of girls when I was younger, like high school through college age, of different ethnic traditions was to learn their grandmother's recipes. So, yes, I've got some Polish food in there, and I've got some Mexican food in there, and uh, lots of Italian. So I didn't cook until I was in my 20s. And, you know, by then my mamaw had Alzheimer's. Mm. And so I would ask her how to make something. And mamaw didn't have recipes. She told yeah. you how to make something. It was a little of this, a little of that, a that. And so that's how I cook now. I take a recipe and then I'll learn it and then I wing it. And yeah. my, kids, my kids say I cook with my heart. <laughs> well, that's the same way my grandmother was. She would say, uh, she'd say, just taste it, taste it. She would say, taste of it, taste of it and see what you think. And she'd be sitting there in the kitchen uh, and I'd be cooking, learn to cook her recipes. And, uh, you know, she had absolutely no problem with tasting, you know, raw eggs and such as that. And, uh, you know, it, I, I had actually been a vegetarian for several years. And uh, when I was back on the farm, well, I started eating meat when I was in college. That was a, a sort of a thing in high school, thanks to a oh very left-wing teacher that got me convinced that I should be a vegetarian and wrecked my health. So I started eating meat again, but I hadn't really worked with a lot of raw meat, you know, like making a meatloaf, sticking your hands in there with the raw beef and eggs. And that took a, a little bit of, you know, aversion to get over. And I learned that I absolutely love to cut meat, to butcher meat. Got really into it. Um, I, I, I learned seam butchery. That was something I actually kind of learned when I was younger. We we had an in-house butcher in the in the, in the grocery store my family owned, and um, it's fascinating actually just to see how an animal's put together. And I mean, it may sound kind of macabre, but when you actually see that you know divine hand of how all this came together, you have so much more respect for your food. Definitely. I mean, I know lots of hunters who, you know, they they gut their deer and they skin it and I mean they butcher their own their own meat right there. To me that's amazing. People who are vegetarian always give me flack, like, how could you eat meat? It's like eat or a cow. It's the same thing as a dog. And I'm like, because I grew up on a cattle farm. So I mean, I say I've seen how small farms operate. 
You know, mm-hmm. I know that my cattle were spoiled. They had a very oh, exactly, good life. Yeah. They got to eat watermelon rinds and they got to eat, you know, corn cobs and, you know, that they were got salt licks and sugar and, you know, yeah. they were spoiled. We loved them. You know what I mean? So it wasn't a big deal for to, you know. Well, the other the thing they don't get. Like, yeah. The other thing they don't get is they grow up on like, I call it like the Disneyfication of American culture. You know, you grow up on Bambi and Thumper and all that, and you think animals have personalities and talk and, and, and frolic in the woods. Nothing dies of old age in nature. No. The minute that deer loses a step, it's either going to be eaten alive by coyotes or parasites. I mean, a hunter's bullet is the most humane death an animal can have. Yeah, see, and I would agree with that. Like, I mean, I grew up around hunters, you know. I mean, I ate, I ate wild turkey and deer and bear. And so, to me, eating eating these things is, you know, it's, it's part of life. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think we're too far removed from that these days. Not, yeah. only, not only just from, from hunting and securing our own food, but also we're too far removed from death. People, it's like people are like terrified of death. And I mean, if you grow up in Appalachia, you know, death is just around the corner. Like we don't hide it. You know, yeah. like your grandparents tell you about it from the time you're, you know, two, three years old. Like you're prepared. You're going to die one day, you know, like well, yeah. now people kind of, you know, they back away from it. Like it's this big thing. You're not supposed to take your kids to funerals and you're, and I'm like, yeah. that's so crazy to me. Like. I can remember going into hospital rooms when people were getting close to passing, you know, when I was four or five years old. Like, that's yeah. just the way I grew up. Like, Well, we've, we've institutionalized things so much. I mean, people now, are, you know, they die in hospice and nursing care. Nobody dies at home for the most part. Uh, I mean, one of the most formative experiences in my life is when my great-grandfather passed away, the, the one I mentioned to you. And um, I wasn't feeling well. And um, my mother took me over to the car to sit down. I had a couple of heat strokes when I was younger, you know, Eastern North Carolina. So I could get dizzy pretty quickly in a hot sun. And um, doves rose up from his grave. White doves, non-native North Carolina, right? So that was, yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, one of the stories I told you last time, I'll, I'll pop this one in here in case you can use it. Um, you know, my hero was uh, Louis Grizzard. When the University of North Carolina, great, great uh, Southern comedian, and he talked about his his best friend, great American, Wayman C. Wanamaker Jr. See, Wayman C. Wanamaker Jr.'s uh, great uncle was this old man was severely bit back. You know, he's kind of hunched over him. He got to be up in his nineties, and he passed away. And um, they couldn't get him to lay flat in the coffin. And speaking of how we are more comfortable with death. Back then, of course, you had the setting up. You'd have the coffin at home and everybody keep watch through the night because you didn't want somebody to be, be buried alive. And that used to happen a lot, actually. So that's where we get our tradition of the setting up. Well, they had Uncle Eck in this coffin strapped down with bungee cords. Well, the family's been milling around and everything, and he gets down toward night. And, and Wayman C. Wanamaker Jr.'s father asked him if he wouldn't mind setting up with him and his father with Uncle Eck. And they're sitting there, and, you know, it starts getting around 10 o'clock at night, and Wayman C. Wanamaker Jr.'s grandfather says, Boys, if y'all are going to sit up with Uncle Eck, I'm going to go on to bed. Mm, about 11 o'clock, midnight come along, and his father says, Son, if you're going to sit up with Uncle Eck, I'm going to have to go on to bed. I'm just too tired. About midnight, in come those big thunderstorms you get in the southeast, rolling thunder, the whole house shaking. 
and those bungee cords let go, and Uncle Eck just kind of rose up in that coffin. And Wayne C. Wanamaker Jr. says, Uncle Eck, if you're sitting up, I'm going on to bed. <laughs> That's a great story. I've heard, so my grandparents were born in the 20s, so I grew up on stories about sitting up with the dead. And, you know, this is something that, like, my husband has never heard of, you know. Oh, really? Of sitting up with the dead, yeah. You sure he's from Wyoming, but that can't be right. <laughs> Well, no, or he he's from Cumberland County. Oh, he's from Cumberland. You see, well, they're well, right. they're they're more, you know, high class people up that way. Right. So, I mean, he never the hearing st- me share stories about this, like he'd never even heard of it, you know. But I grew up on them, and it's because you know, in the mountains, we're a little um, what's the word for it, fatalistic, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have any tech signs on your on your bards or anything? Not. Not that I know of, I don't think so, but our barn, so my Papa Cochran had a barn that was built in like, I don't know, probably the early 40s, yeah, late 30s, and um, I think it's more when the Germans came in, they, they, they were more the ones that would do the hex science and everything. I can remember going in that barn though when I was really little, um, but after he passed away when I was about seven or eight, the barn is still there. But I don't know the last time anyone's been inside of it. Oh, wow. so I, who okay. knows what's in there? Yeah, it's really it's a, it's an interesting tradition. A lot of those what they call it hex signs. So it's like they're not pentagrams; they're actually six sided stars, and it actually has a, a Christian symbolism to it. They would paint them on the house or on the barn, you know, to ward away lightning. Was essentially what it came down to. And a lot of those same patterns end up showing up in quilts in the eighteen hundreds. Real pretty stuff. That's cool. I did not know that. I'm gonna have to do some research on that now. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, you, well, there's several places in North Carolina, but then really when you get into like the foothills, uh, like South Carolina, you'll see Dutch this and Dutch that. There's Dutch Creek in North Carolina. Well, it was actually Deutsch. They were Germans, but people thought they were Dutch. So when you hear about you know the Dutch whatever community, they were actually uh, Germans that moved into the the mountains after the revolution. Very well, the Reed family for uh, the Reed gold line, they were, yeah, absolutely. There are tons of them that were uh, Meisenheimer, and uh, oh, yeah, yeah, we could talk, definitely talk about the North Carolina's gold history. I did a lot of work on that, and we didn't even get into barbecue tonight. (laughs) We didn't, I know, and I'm running out of time. I'm sorry, but. All right, go ahead and share with me your your social media website. Where can people find you? All right, all right. Uh, so all my books are available on Amazon. Most of them are herb books. I got some on uh, cooking and religion. Um, my Substack newsletter is Southern Appalachian Herbs Substack dot com. Get my tongue tied here. My woodworking uh, baskets and crafts and everything I make are available on uh, Judson Carroll Woodcraft uh, the blog, southernappalachianherbs.blogspot.com, and you can find me on most any, southern, any social media that doesn't censor me for my political beliefs. There you go. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with me tonight, Judson. This was fun. I, this is going to turn out great. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> right. hey, I, hope, I hope it turns out as well as the last one did. We had a good time on that one, but I think this one's pretty good, too. I know, and I'm not getting any feedback, so it should be perfect. <laughs> Good, good. Hey, uh, let me tell you one more story about Leroy and Bubba. Remember I told you about how they saw the dog and that dog will bite you? Oh, yeah. Uh, so they're coming home from the football game, and there's a sign at the gas station that says, free sex with every fill-up. 
They pull in there and Leroy fills up the car. Man walks out, says that'll be $25. He said, wait a minute now. It said free sex with every fill up. He said, well, now there's a catch to it. You got to uh, guess a number between one and 10. He said, well, it's seven. No, no, it's three. They pull away and Bubba says to him, you know, I think that's a scam. He said, hell no, it's not. My wife won it three times last week. <laughs> oh, Lord. I'm going to make you a Louis oh. Broussard fan before this is all over. <laughs> he wrote the classic book, uh, Don't Bend Over in the Garden, Grandma. You know, them taters have eyes. <laughs> oh, all right, Judson. I'm going to get off here. Thank you so much for doing this with me tonight. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Anytime. <laughs> yeah. Oh, your hair look good, by the way. I saw the picture. Thank you, sir. I was <laughs> loving it whenever I got home. It hadn't been this long in a long time, so maybe I'll get down to uh, Crystal Gale length for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That girl could sing. Man, when she was younger, she could sing. My, my, my daddy was in love with her, and he would not let me cut my hair when I was little. And when I was about 16 years old, uh, my mom, of course, had had my hair trimmed over the years, but my hair was always very long. Mm -hmm. And so when I turned about, I want to say 16, I had a car and a job and I went and had my hair cut for myself for the first time. And I whacked my hair off just below my chin. I had a mm -hmm. cute little bob yeah. and I went and saw my daddy and my daddy cried. He called my <laughs> mama fussing. I mean, he was so upset. So I grew my hair back out. I didn't touch it again until I was 18 and then I whacked it off again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Well, yeah, uh, I got, I got, got to say though. So as well as she can sing, nobody beats Loretta. Oh no, Laura, she was great. She was, she was the best. She was absolutely the best. Uh, yeah, you get those classic songs like "Your Squall's on the Warp Path Tonight" or "You're Gonna Go to Fist City." Man, that's good stuff. <laughs> I met uh, Kitty Wells when I was a kid. Really? Wow. And I was about uh, probably eight. And she was at the, uh, what was it? It was the sideshow for the Isaiah Fest. Mm -hmm. And so it was opening night. It was like a Thursday night. And my Aunt Sandy took me and my cousin Evan down to see the show. And Kitty Wells was there. And I had no idea who she was. And I'd grown up on her. My mom and papa yeah. later, you know, when I was a kid. And so we go down there and we shake her hand and she gives us hugs and she signed a, an autograph picture for my papa. And that picture hung in my mom and papa's house until they passed away. But it's crazy that at the time I had no idea how amazing that was. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. That really is cool. Well, all right. I'm going to go get some supper. All right. Will you enjoy? Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'll be back next Wednesday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss me. And if you're looking for more content, you can always head over to the blog at www.wherethedogwithblooms.com. Y'all stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.